So if for some reason you are interested in coming to Coloma still, we still have a couple of spots open. And uh, just for reference, what, what Christian just talked us through with that song called Garden, that is going to be the theme of what we study. We're going to be studying the theme of the promised land throughout all of scripture. So we're going to start in the garden and see what we can learn from Genesis 1, 2, and and even Genesis 3, and then trace this theme of how the garden and and the promised lands is, is an idea that goes from Genesis all the way to Revelation 22. And we, as the church, we're anticipating the day when we will enter into God's promised land, which is going to, in a sense, be a a new garden. The Garden of Eden revitalized and and given new life. We will be there in God's presence, walking with him in the cool of the day. So that's what we're going to be studying. If that interests you at all and you have $65 to throw out on a trip spontaneously, that's going to happen this weekend, so it's Friday to Sunday, I would strongly encourage you to come and talk to us afterwards. We still do have a couple of spots, like I said. So with that, with that, I want to actually pray one more time and then we'll, we'll jump into our passage for this evening. Father, we, we do pray uh, tonight that you would, you would help us to have sober minds as we go through your word. And uh, we pray that you would encourage us as we think thoughtfully about what what we have here in Hebrews chapter 6, these glorious promises that give us hope, that give us the ability to to walk, walk our days in hope, anticipating the day when we will be with you. Father, we pray for this right now in, in Christ's name, and we ask that you would strengthen us to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to begin by actually highlighting something that's uh, just, it's kind of dark. Over, over the course of the past few decades, there has been a remarkable incline nationwide uh, in, in statistics related to suicide. Since 1990, 49 of 50 states experienced a steady growth in the number of suicides. Some of those states, the the number of suicides has risen by 30% in just a few decades. And in fact, the only state not included in that increase is Nevada, a, a, a state that's infamous for having a remarkably high suicide rate already. And these statistics are consistent across race and gender. So no matter your race, no matter your gender, there is a steady incline, a steady growth in regards to suicide. So just last week, two major celebrities committed suicide, sending a shockwave throughout the nation. Recently, Hollywood has made it its effort to highlight this issue, creating shows where the entire plot line centers on the idea of suicide. And it's also been clearly demonstrated statistically, and this won't come as a surprise, but depression and suicide are are linked. There's correlation here. Which reminds us 
that at the very same time that the suicide rates, uh, uh, rates are growing, the, the prescription on antidepressants, that, that number has also reached an all-time high. So while depression is, is reaching an all-time high, so is suicide. And what I don't want us to do is pretend that these sorts of statistics are merely represented in a secular culture. These realities are not only something that are worldly in nature. At times, members of the church face the same exact feelings, the same exact thoughts, the same hurts, the same dismay. And it leads us to ask, what is driving all of this? And as members of the church, I'm especially interested in what is happening in the body of Christ. What is causing people who claim the name of Christ to struggle with depression and to struggle with thoughts of suicide? What is driving that? Well, with Christians, depression is often related to the gut feeling of uncertainty regarding your assurance, regarding your walk with Christ. Many are driven to depression because they don't have answers to questions like, how can I know for sure I am truly a child of God? How can I know and be certain that God actually loves me? And as we seek to answer these questions, I need to point out that the book of Hebrews, it can cause angst. It can cause the Christian anxiety at times because as we read the book of Hebrews, it's it's filled with such intense warnings and exhortations and it can leave us wondering, leave us troubled, leave us feeling spiritually hopeless and helpless at times. Sometimes you, you walk away from the book of Hebrews going, does God actually love me? Is there hope for me? Maybe you feel as though you have no hope because you're stumbling into sin in significant ways. Maybe you're wondering whether or not you have fallen from God's grace. Maybe you're wondering whether or not Christ actually loves you regardless of your sin. Maybe you're doubtful that your faith, as flimsy and fickle as it may be, is sincere enough to save you. For the Christian, these thoughts are often rooted in the idea of assurance. Does God love me and how can I actually know that? Well, I know that's not always the case. A massive proportion of of those questions are sparked by those thoughts. And so we want to ask that question, where does assurance actually come from? Can we, as Christians, rest confident that we are actually a part of the people of God? Can we be sure that God will not forsake us? Can we put our our questions and our doubts to rest? And I want to remind you that Hebrews does consist 
of this steady dose of stark warnings for the people of God. And yet at the very same time, this letter provides us with some of the most profound and some of the most stunning promises for the people of God found within the New Testament. It's almost as though as we read the book of Hebrews, the more intense the warning gets, the more profound the promises that follows. So in our text tonight, we see one of those promises following one of the most intense warnings in the book. Here we see two answers of the question to the question of assurance. First, we can have assurance that we have taken hold of salvation by looking at the fruit in our lives. That's the first mark of assurance. And we'll see that in verses 9 through 12. And then secondly, we gain assurance by looking beyond ourselves to our gracious God who grants us promises upon promises. So those are the two two areas where we gain assurance. So let's begin in verses 9 through 12. Here we see assurance is gained through fruit bearing. As we enter into verse 9, I want to point out the clear shift in tone that takes place here. Notice as we transition from the stern warnings of of verses 1 through 8, the first half of the chapter, now we come to verse 9 and the tone has, has transformed. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. We are convinced of better things. We are confident of better things, things that belong to salvation. So after warning the church that they are at risk of falling away because of their sluggish hearts, now he's encouraging them. He's pointing out that he is actually confident that they're going to respond well to these warnings. He's saying you need to hear that you are running the risk of falling away. You have a sluggish heart. You are dull to respond to the word of God and to the gospel. And because of that, you are running the risk of falling into apostasy. Yet, I am confident that you will remain faithful. Even though I'm giving you these warnings, even though I'm speaking in this way, I am sure of this, that you will heed the exhortations that I'm giving you. And so I just want to pause. When you exhort others, or when you offer rebukes, to others, do you have this same sort of mindset and this same sort of tone? Do you offer hope? Do you have faith that the person you are speaking with is actually going to respond well? Are you confident that a child of God, when when he or she hears a rebuke, is actually going to respond with faith and obedience and repentance? Is that your mindset? Is that the way you you approach those situations? Maybe you're thinking right now, if only you knew the people I have to deal with, you probably wouldn't say that. If only you knew how sinful my roommate is, you probably wouldn't make that observation. If only you knew who my my brother is or who my sister is, you, you probably wouldn't make that comment. But that actually leads us to ask an important question. Where can we get such confidence? 
where do we find confidence when we come and approach someone because of their sin? Thinking, expecting that they're going to respond well. How can we be sure that people will respond with obedience or with faith? Where does the author of Hebrews get this idea, get this confidence? Well, ultimately, his confidence is not in the people that he's addressing. His confidence is actually in God because God is at work in these people. The author of Hebrews recognizes recognizes something that's remarkable. God is at work in these people. He's at work in this church. And so when I approach them with rebuke or exhortations, I, I expect God to work. I expect him to work in their hearts and to, to cause them to respond well. The author of Hebrews understands this, and we need to understand this, that God actually does grant people the ability to respond to God's word with faith and obedience. And so when I approach someone who's fallen into some sort of sin, I can actually have confidence that that person is going to respond well. They are going to to respond with, with a dignified response. I don't have to go into that situation just waiting and anticipating them turning their cheek and running the other way as if they want nothing to do with what God says or what God's word has to say for their lives. I can actually come to that person with confidence. God's at work. I I trust that he is working. And this actually drastically changes our tone and our demeanor when we approach people as well. If we come with the expectation that they're going to respond well, then that that gives us the ability to hold out hope even in times of stern rebuke. You actually have the ability to encourage someone in that moment because you know that that person has has Christ working in their heart. Now as we continue into verse 10, we get even more insight as to why we can have confidence when we approach people. Living in sin, walking in sin. Here we see that his confidence is bound up in God's character and their good works. Here the author, he, he finds, it, finds comfort in the fact that God is not unjust. God's not unjust. He's not going to overlook their good works that they've already done. He's not going to overlook the faith that they have portrayed in Christ. Look at verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to over, overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. See, this church has demonstrated that they possess good works and that they have shown love for God's name and that they are serving the church. So the author here, he's looking back on the way that they have been living and he's, he has confidence. He sees God at work in their lives. He sees God at work in his children. And it's rooted in this idea that if someone is living a life of faith, that's nothing that they could do on their own. That's only something that God could produce. So when you see someone living a life of faith, you can have confidence. God is at work. And even if I see that person years later start to fall into sin, you you look back on the way they have lived their life in the past and you say, you know what? I've seen God at work. I I trust that he's continuing to work. I trust that he's going to to work in their hearts right now as I approach them. They're going to respond well because God is is at work. The Spirit's at work. And this gives us confidence because we know that 
God is not going to overlook their, their good deeds that they've performed in the name of Christ in the past. Right? He's, he's not going to overlook them as though they are not his people. He knows whom he has saved. He knows those in whom he has worked, and he's not going to overlook that. And so he says here that we ought to find encouragement by looking at our past and seeing the fruit that God has produced in our past, and, and we can find assurance in that. So transition now and think of your own life. Not the life of others necessarily, but think of your own life. You can have assurance. If you, can, if you look back on your past and you say, you know, I'm trusting in Christ. I, I've seen good works in my life. There is assurance that comes from that. There's the, the recognition that God is at work and God has done things in your heart and he is still at work. Which points to another fact here. He wants the church also to continue to pursue good works. You see, you shouldn't only find assurance in what you've done in the past. You can also find assurance in what you are doing now. So look back at at verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, and you still do. So he's focused also on the present, not only the past. There's assurance that you can find in the way you are living today. As you grow and as you mature And as you produce more fruit, your assurance also grows, corresponds. Your assurance grows with it. So here's a theological term. It's called sanctification. It's the idea of becoming more and more righteous in your character as you grow in your Christian life. Hebrews here is calling us to strive in our sanctification, and he's also giving us a profound assurance that as we grow in our sanctification, so too does our assurance grow that we are sincere Christians. Now I want us to turn our attention now to verses 11 and 12. Look how these verses relate to one another. Verse 11, And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So what he's pointing out here is that you must strive to maintain this eagerness so that you will not become sluggish. Don't become sluggish, become eager. And as you become eager, your assurance will grow. As you become sluggish, your assurance will will diminish. Remember what we saw last week in chapter 5, verse 11. I'm going to turn our attention there. Verse, or, or chapter 5 verse 11. About this, we have much more to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Now, in the original language, that that phrase dull, dull of hearing, that's the same word that we see here in chapter 6, verse 12, sluggish. And it comes up again in verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish. In other words, so that you may not be dull in your response to the word of God. He's calling the church out of their sluggishness towards eagerness, towards earnestness. So let's not forget the fact that the stern warning that we saw last week was rooted 
in their dull and sluggish hearts. The whole, the whole reason behind him giving such an intense, abrupt warning to the Hebrews, it was rooted in the fact that they were sluggish. They were slow to respond to God's word. And so now he's, he's calling them to turn from their sluggishness towards earnestness. Because here's the truth. When you are sluggish, when your heart is sluggish, when it is dull and, and slow to respond to God's word, you will have no assurance that you are actually a Christian. It, it correlates. And yet eagerness and earnestness will cause your assurance to grow and to multiply. Look back at verse 11. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness so that, in order that, you might have the full assurance of hope. He wants them to have full assurance. How are they going to get assurance? By being eager to grow, by having an earnest attitude towards sanctification. Because when your sluggishness grows, your fruit will shrink. When sluggishness festers, your assurance will dwindle. And yet when you are earnest in your faith, you will actually grow in your assurance. And that's our goal. Right? That's, that's the point of this passage, to have assurance that you are actually a Christian, to have confidence that you are part of the people of God. We don't want to be doubters who are squandering our days, wondering whether or not God actually loves us. We don't want to waste our time and our resources wondering whether or not we have genuine faith. We want full assurance. How do we get that? earnestness, eagerness. Which leads to another question. How then can we fight against a sluggish or a dull heart? What do we do to fight against that? How can we be eager or earnest? We find some insight at the end of verse 12. So he says in verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, Instead, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So verse 12, it actually acts like a bridge in a sense. It links what we see in verses uh, uh, 9 through 12 with what we see in verses 13 through 20. Here he's saying the way that we grow in earnestness is by imitating those who have gone before us. Because when we imitate people who have gone before us, we can actually learn true, lasting faith in God. Become imitators of them. We need to look at these examples. We need to grow by looking at them because they actually demonstrate for us what it means to walk by faith in trial and in difficulty, in times of darkness. So the emphasis here is both on the example that we have set before us by people who have walked in faith, and yet as we transition to verses 13 to 13 through 20, more importantly, this section pushes us to look at how God proved himself faithful to his people in the past. And so we'll see, he focuses on Abraham and Abraham's faith. And he shows that Abraham is an example for us to follow. And yet he then quickly transitions to his main point. His main point of emphasis, which isn't necessarily Abraham's faith. His emphasis is on the one in whom Abraham has placed his faith. His emphasis is actually not on the one who who demonstrated faith through the end, but on the one 
who came through in the end. His focus is on the faithfulness of God. God chose to demonstrate his trustworthiness and faithfulness to Abraham. And so he's, he's going to highlight that. He's going to highlight God who is faithful, God who is trustworthy. So let's look at verses 13 through 20. Here we see that God has bound himself with an oath-bound promise for the people of God. Here we see the other side of our assurance. It's not necessarily rooted in our faithfulness, in our fruit bearing. The other side of assurance is rooted in the faithfulness and trustworthiness of God. It's rooted in God's oath-bound promise. John Piper, he wrote a little book um, called When the Darkness Will Not Lift, specifically geared towards spiritual depression. And here he says this, It is utterly crucial that in our darkness we affirm the wise, strong hand of God to hold us, even when we have no strength to hold on to him. See, at times our faith is dimly lit. At times our faith is not evident, even to our own eyes. Maybe we feel so lost in our sin or so lost in spiritual darkness that we cannot seem to find assurance. Even when we look at our own sanctification, even when we look at our own fruit, it's not helping us. And we're left wondering whether raisins even count as fruit. Does a true Christian have any assurance by looking at these dried up, rock hard grapes? Does that count? Well, as we move forward in our passage, we come across jaw dropping promises that prompt encouragement even in the most difficult times. Even when we don't see mature fruit taking place in our hearts, we look at the promises of God that shine through our darkest hours, our darkest states. Look at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. You may be wondering what it means here that God swore by himself. What is he referring to here? What, what oath is he talking about here in, in verse 14? Well, this is actually a quotation coming from Genesis 22, verses 16 and 17. He summarizes the two verses here, so let me just read the verses in their entirety. Chapter 22 of Genesis, verses 16 and 17. God is speaking to Abraham, and he says this, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashores and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Notice what God says here at the start of verse 16 of chapter 22 in Genesis. Before he makes this promise to Abraham about Abraham's offspring growing and multiplying, he mentions that he has bound himself by his, his own name. He's making this promise to Abraham with an oath. God has decided to bless Abraham, but he doesn't merely promise Abraham that he will bless him. He goes further than that. 
He swears by his own name, his own faithfulness, and then he grants Abraham a promise. He swears by himself that he will make sure that this blessing comes to fruition. And so in verse 15, we read this, and thus Abraham, back in Hebrews chapter 6, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So God makes the promise, Abraham waits, and eventually the promise is fulfilled. The promise comes to fruition. Abraham receives his son, the son that he had been waiting on, and his offsprings begin to multiply. In fact, I don't know how familiar you are with the story of Abraham, but Abraham waited his entire life for the promise that God made to him to come to fruition. And it's here that we can learn from Abraham. So we can learn from Abraham's example. Notice here, that's, that's what he's telling us to do, imitate Abraham. We can learn from this man who, who dedicated himself to faith for decades. He waited for God to come through on his promises, and eventually God does. So even though Abraham and his wife are, are old and decrepit, God looks on them with faith, or God looks on, on them and, and grants them this promise that he made to them. He gives Sarah a, a son, even though her womb is, as Hebrews says, old and expired. Believed God. Abraham believes God. And because of that, God, God grants him these promises. He, he receives them. But this leads us to the actual point here. The point here is not so much on Abraham. The focus here is actually on God. You see, yes, Abraham possessed faith and we should look to him as an example. However, we can't miss the fact that it was God who came through in the story. God was the one who proved himself to be faithful. God was the one who kept his promises. And that's what we're going to see as we continue throughout the rest of the chapter. All of a sudden, the emphasis just moves from Abraham over to God. Look at verses 16 and 17. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all of their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. In other words, an oath settles every dispute. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. God bound himself to this promise. So what's the point of an oath in the first place? It shows someone's sincerity and and their commitment to keep the promise that they're making. When you give an oath, you're putting your character on the line. In a sense, you, you end the debate when you, when you do this. When you bind yourself by an oath, you're, you're ending the debate in that moment. And Hebrew, Hebrews points out here that every, every oath, in a, in, from an earthly standpoint, when a man commits himself through an oath, the, the debate is over. It's confirmed. That person now is bound by their integrity to come through on what they promised they would do. And yet here we see God decides to bind himself to a promise. And he does so by swearing by himself. And because he can't swear by anything greater than himself, he's the greatest being in the universe. He swears by himself. Yet it's completely unnecessary for God to do this. 
right? It's completely unnecessary for God to give a promise and then swear by his own character that he will fulfill that promise. And yet he decided to do so. But I want to, before we move on to verse 18, I want to address one more thing here in verse 17. You might have noticed that God here is binding himself by an oath to a promise that he made with Abraham. And so maybe, maybe you're asking the question, why does it matter that God bound himself to a promise with Abraham? I'm not Abraham. What does this have anything to do with me? Well, notice here at the verse, uh, at the end of verse 17, look what he says here. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So here the author of Hebrews is saying, yes, this promise to Abraham is not only to Abraham, it's actually to us. It's, it's to the church now. We are all beneficiaries of this promise. So in a real way, God has bound himself to you with an oath. He made a promise to you and not only to Abraham. And he bound himself to it. So, so how, then, how then is that the case? How, how, do, how are we tied with Abraham? Galatians 3 says, Everyone who trusts in Christ is now the offspring of Abraham. You are the heir that verse 17 is talking about. You are the, the one who's going to inherit the promise. Because when you demonstrate faith, you are actually mimicking Abraham, and by so doing, you become, according to Galatians 3, a spiritual offspring of Abraham. And so in that sense, I know that may be confusing, that may seem convoluted, but here, here's the point. If you have trusted Christ, then these promises are actually for you. If you've believed in the Lord Jesus, then God has bound himself to you with this promise. God has sworn to all of his people that he will fulfill his promise. So if you are a Christian, your eternal inheritance is wrapped up in the oath-bound promise that God made to his people. You have a guarantee that you will inherit eternal life. And that guarantee is far greater than you. It's far greater than those raisins. It's far greater than even the most mature fruit. God's promise is, is your full assurance. That's the ultimate form of assurance that you can find. Fine. It's God's promise that he has granted to his people. So with that in mind, let's now turn to verse 18, where we see how absurd it is that God would even bind himself by an oath in the first place. Verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. So there are two unbreakable things. Two unbreakable things that give us hope. First, God promised to Abraham. And when God speaks, in a sense, he's bound. He's bound in that moment. The promise is, is coming 
to fruition. He, he's, he's committed himself just by opening his mouth and speaking a word. And yet God still gave an oath. Even though his word is true, even though his word is always faithful, he still gives himself or gives to Abraham an oath. And that's the second unbreakable thing that this text is talking about. You see, if God cannot lie, as verse 18 says, then he doesn't need to bind himself. He doesn't need to swear by his own name. But he does so for our sake. He commits himself to us with the double measure, even though he doesn't have to, in order to demonstrate his immeasurable commitment to us as the people of God. You see, the same faithful God in whom Abraham places his hope is our God. The same God who cannot lie is our God. The same God who has bound himself by an oath to Abraham has also bound himself to us. And therefore, we have strong encouragement. We have hope now. It's not in question. You see, why would we have hope in something that would be questionable? If we were left wondering whether or not God is actually going to come through, if we were left wondering whether or not he's actually trustworthy, then why in the world would we even be uh, interested, remotely interested in being faithful to God? Well, we don't have a fickle, untrustworthy God. We have a faithful king who's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our hope, and we cannot lose sight of that. He's faithful in everything he does. He's trustworthy in all of his ways. And so as we close in verses 19 and 20, we see the benefits of this hope that we have placed in God. Verse 19, we have this, he's referring to the hope, we have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone and as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So I want to be honest, from my perspective, I think those two verses are worthy of an entire sermon. But I know if I went that slow through the book of Hebrews, it would take us years, and most of you in this room would never get to hear the entire book of Hebrews preached. So I'm not going to move that slowly. But I do want to ponder what these two verses mean. Notice what he says here. This hope that we have in our God, who, who makes promises for his people, steadfastly faithful, That hope acts as a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. This hope that God has bound himself to us as a promise-keeping God who will never let his people go, it acts as an anchor. And this anchor will never fail. It will never fault. It's sure, it's steady, it can be trusted. It does not matter how hard the storm rages or how hard the current pulls. This anchor is not going anywhere. It's locked into place. And notice what we see here. This this hope, it's an anchor for our souls. Now you may be tempted into thinking that this means that if I just believe this hope enough then I'm not going to go anywhere. God's going to hold on to me. As long as I have hope that's really strong, 
As long as I, I have this hope that he's talking about in this verse, I'm not going anywhere. Maybe you're thinking that if you just believe the promises of God enough or, or intense or hard enough, then you're going to stay. You're going to stay firm and, and, and you're not going anywhere. But that's not what this is talking about. This isn't talking about your ability to remain faithful to this hope. This is talking about an objective reality. This is talking about the fact that if you have placed your trust in Christ, then your soul is secure. It's not going anywhere. This hope is, is, is steadfast. It's not going to move. If you've placed your, your hope in Christ, then you are anchored into the promises of God and you are not going to budge. And notice that this hope, it also grants us access to the inner sanctuary. So we're, we're locked in the inner sanctuary of the temple. Like what in the world does that mean? This hope that we have has, has secured our place behind the curtain. So what's he talking about here? He's talking about the Holy of Holies, the place in, 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 the, in the Jewish mindset where God dwelt in his, in his most pure sense. And he's saying here that if you have this hope in Christ, you're there. You're in the Holy of Holies. And you, you, you're locked in. Like, what in the world are you getting at here? This means that you are bound to the Holy of Holies, the most sacred place that, that the author of Hebrews could think of. That's where you're at. This means that you will inherit God's kingdom. It is yours. You will see God face to face. There's no question about that because in a real sense, you're already there. You're already in the Holy of Holies. I think what he's getting at here is the reality that we have God's Spirit dwelling in us right now. In a real sense, you and I, we are the Holy of Holies. This is exactly what 1 Corinthians 6 points to. We are the temple of God. God makes his dwelling in his people. So if you are a Christian right now, you are, in a real sense, bound to the Holy of Holies. God is dwelling in your midst right this moment. And you're never going to leave that place. You have sure confidence that one day you will arrive in God's presence and you do not have anything to fear. So when the antagonizing accusations of Satan rain down on you, we have a sure and steady anchor for the soul. When your emotions begin to get the best of you, you begin to feel cut off from the people of God, you have a sure and steady anchor. There, there is a, a sure hope set in the person of Christ. When we feel that we will never be granted ex access into God's presence because of our sin, we have a sure and steady anchor for the soul that will never give way. It will never budge. It will never erode. It's staying put. And notice this in verse 20. In addition to God binding himself to us with a promise and with an oath, God has decided to bind himself to us through the work of Christ. Verse 20. So we have access to the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. 
having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Christ has entered into the inner sanctuary. And because you are one with Jesus, you have also entered into the inner sanctuary. And that means you can have confidence, you can have assurance that you will be found acceptable in God's sight if you've placed your faith in Christ. You and Christ are one. Christ has already been there, therefore you're with him. You're with him there. There's nothing to fear about. There's nothing to fret about. So when your assurance begins to wane, you can have hope. God will find you acceptable in his sight, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. So I don't know where you're at tonight. Maybe you currently, right now, feel cut off from the people of God. Maybe you you feel as though you're helpless and you're cast out from God's presence. Maybe in this moment you are feeling the, the, the thoughts of despair. And maybe that's being motivated by a spiritual depression. You, you don't know whether or not God actually loves you. Well, we have the chance right now to find assurance. So even if you feel cast out from God right now, you have assurance. You can look at your own fruit And maybe right now you're in such a dark place that you you can't see your own fruit. You're blinded to your fruit. You don't see it. You don't see any oranges or any pomegranates, any lush apples. And you're just going, "I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, in that moment of your darkest hour when when, when things are pitch black and you feel spiritually separated from Christ, you can look beyond yourself to the accomplishments of Christ. You can't, you can't just focus on yourself and try to find where, where is faith. Look to Christ because he is the ultimate faithful one who has bound himself to his people with a promise. Not only that, with his own death. So if you are in Christ, there's, there's nothing to fear. There's nothing to fret because he is faithful. He's trustworthy. He's binding himself to his people. So you can find hope in these promises, even in the darkest moments. Let's pray. Father, we, we desperately hope that you would grant us this assurance. I especially think of those who, 